You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Clash of Minds, Episode 9, with Walter Fite. You might think this is a somewhat strange title. I titled it, I Think, Therefore He Is. And I think you will notice that that is a twist of what someone else said. And we'll talk a little bit about this. Now, what is this going to be all about? You know that the world is experiencing a fair face of Roman Catholicism, and Vatican II has been described as a breath of fresh air. And unfortunately, many of the people who belong to the very group that I belong to seem to think the same thing. And so I deemed it appropriate to investigate this issue to see if Vatican II indeed was a breath of fresh air. It is basically an attempt of mine to once again just point everyone in this movement to have another look to make sure because it is the excuse that is given why we should be in this relationship with these other churches and why we should believe that there has been a change of heart in regards to religious liberty and I've heard statements on our television programs that indeed there's been a change of heart and that people who do not see it are nothing more than conspiracy theorists. I know that I'm hopping on this subject, but I want to make a statement on this issue so I can move on to bigger things and better things. I think, therefore, he is. Pope Francis and Peter Faber, kindred Jesuit spirits, comes from the National Catholic Reporter, and it's September 20, 2013. You see, we're pretty up to date here. We're not too far behind, right? Pope Francis' statements of late on solidarity with the poor, on the need for community, and on refocusing the church's energies away from a narrow focus on sexual issues. Let's get away from all these things that are happening that seem so negative, and who cares who's what and what in the zoo anyway? May sound shocking to some, this is much different tone than the image of the papacy in recent times. In Paris, Faber, who was a co-founder of the Jesuits together with Ignatius Loyola, also encountered Ignatius Loyola. He tutored Ignatius on Aristotelian philosophy. While Ignatius formed Faber's spirituality. So I'm just showing you the roots from their own sources. Under Ignatius' guidance, Faber mastered the spiritual exercises, and in 1534 he was ordained a priest, and later that year he and six other men, including Ignatius and Francis Xavier, took vows as the first members of what became the Jesuit order. So the spirituality that we have in the Jesuit ranks and the philosophy that we have doesn't stem from the Bible. It stems from Greek philosophy 
and it stems from a spirituality which is totally different to that which is described in the Bible. So here we have another way to worship God. By the way, the beast that came out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, what body did it have? It had the body of a leopard. And a leopard is which philosophy? Greek. Greek philosophy. Because the leopard is Greece, according to Daniel chapter 7. If we go back to Avignon, history of the Reformation, Inigo, which is the short for Ignatius Loyola, instead of feeling that his remorse was sent to drive him to the foot of the cross, persuaded himself that these inward reproaches proceeded not from God, but from the devil. And he resolved never more to think of his sins, to erase them from his memory and bury them in eternal oblivion. Luther turned towards Christ. Loyola only fell upon himself. Visions came ere long to confirm Inigo in the convictions at which he had arrived. He did not seek truth in the Holy Scriptures, but imagined in their place immediate communication with the world of the spirits. Luther, on taking his doctoral degree, had pledged his oath to the Holy Scripture. Loyola, at his time, bound himself to dreams and visions. And chimerical apparitions became the principle of his life and his faith. So in the spiritual exercises, he would focus on an icon, preferably Mary, later the Black Madonna, which became a symbol of the black dress and everything that we see in the Jesuit order. And then he would focus so long and repeat over and over and over certain phrases until he actually experienced this communication with God. So his communication wasn't via the word, it was via an experience. In interview, Pope Francis sets new direction for the church. Yes, there is no doubt that Pope Francis is new, different, reformist, open. The papacy marks a clear, if quiet, break with the public emphasis of so many church leaders over the last decades. So he had this interview with the Jesuits. The Jesuits interviewing the Jesuits, publishing in the Jesuit journals, tell you that everything has changed. There's openness. Openness to what? To Mawson? Pope Francis calls for social justice against unemployment. He is the Pope of social justice. I want to know what that means. I need to know what, what does this stand for? What does it mean, social justice? After all, after Vatican II, the papacy is for religious liberty, justice for all, peace and harmony amongst men. Let's first go to the Jesuits and ultramontanism. From the 17th century, ultramontanism became closely associated with the Jesuits, who defended the superiority of the popes over councils and kings, even in temporal questions. This comes from irreputable sources. Within the Roman Catholic Church, ultramontanism achieved victory over conciliarism at the First Vatican Council with the pronouncement of papal infallibility, the ability of the Pope to define dogmas free from error ex cathedra, and the papal supremacy, supreme, full, immediate, and universal ordinary jurisdiction of the Pope, other Christians not in full communion with Rome declared this as a triumph of what they termed the heresy of ultramontanism. 
Now this word ultramontanism has an interesting history. Ultra, other side, montanism, mountain. They used to refer to it, the Protestants, as that one other side, the mountain. But before that, the others who weren't in harmony with the papacy were also, by the papacy, called ultramontanism, those on the other side. But finally it became to mean all power in one man. And the Protestants said, ultramontanism, the man on that side of the mountain, this is heresy, there's no such thing. Can all power be in one man? And eventually, ultramontanism was of course accepted at the Council of Trent, but at the First Vatican Council, it received a stamp, because the Pope was called infallible by decree. So now, he was the ultramontane, the man in control. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God, got its stamp of approval at the First Vatican Council. Now in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, it says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, has sent me unto you. So now we have two I am's. One who is infallible, sitting in Rome, and we have one who is the creator of the universe and the creator of everything that there is, who says, say, I am sent you. Isaiah 46 verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. So there can't be two gods. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And I, I must admit in my own life, having been a Roman Catholic, that this verse was very true in my case, because it's prophecy, that proved to me who the true I am is. Because only the true I am can tell you history in advance. And so, he proved to me that he was the only I am, because he told me ahead of time what was going to happen, and therefore, by checking prophecy, I can see that he is telling the truth. So, the serpent is the one who said, ye shall be as gods. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the one hand you have only one God, the I Am, and here you have a promise that if you follow in disobedience, you will also be God, and you will not die. This is the office of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 1. The church teaches that every spiritual soul is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death. And just to make sure that that hasn't been forgotten by the Roman Catholic Church, I will quote Pope Benedict XVI's Caritas in Veritate, where he says, Man is not a lost atom in a random universe. He is God's creature whom God chose to endow with an immortal soul and whom he has always loved. So there's no change in doctrine there. And as we see, 
this is what the serpent said, not what God said. Now, is just this, is this just an error of thinking? Or does Rome actually know that this is what the serpent said and not what God said? What does the Bible teach about immortality? Shall we ask Rome? This is the New Catholic Encyclopedia. The soul in the Old Testament means not a part of man, but the whole man as a living being. Similarly, in the New Testament, it signifies human life, the life of an individual conscious object. Recent exegetes have maintained that the New Testament does not teach the immortality of the soul in the Hellenistic sense of survival of an immortal principle after death. So they know that the Old Testament teaches that there's no such thing as the separation of the one from the other. The soul is the whole man. And there's no such thing in the scripture of immortality that is a Hellenistic doctrine. Again, we come to the leopard beast. It's Greek philosophy. It's not God philosophy. So Rome certainly qualifies in believing the message of the serpent. Pope Leo X, on Monday, December the 19th, 1513, issued a bull in which he declared, declared you know, I like this word bull. <laughs> it has such a double meaning. <laughs> we do condemn and reprobate all who assert that the intelligent soul is mortal. And this bull was directed against the growing heresy of those who denied the immortal, the natural immortality of the soul and avowed the conditional immortality of man. Now, you know what to me is fascinating in history is that Martin Luther, and here's the man who translated the Bible, and he must have taken great pains to understand the meaning of the words. Because how are you going to translate something like that? That Martin Luther, on October 31, 1517, published his defense of his... Uh, or in his 1520 published defense of these articles that he pinned to the church door, Luther cited the Pope's immortality declaration as among, quote from Luther, those monstrous opinions to be found in the Roman dunghill of decretals. He had such a way with words, did Luther. Don't emulate Luther in this, please don't. Archbishop Francis Blackburn states, Luther espoused the doctrine of the sleep of the soul upon the scripture foundation, and then he made use of it as a confutation of purgatory and saint worship, and continued in that belief to the last moment of his life. I could give you many more quotes on the issue, but I'm not doing a study on death. I'm looking at a principle here. Martin Luther believed in soul sleep until the resurrection. Does his church believe that today? No. But they call themselves Lutherans. I don't understand why. I would ask the Lutherans, please, to go back to what Luther taught, because it was based on the Bible. William Tyndall is the other one who translated the Bible into the English tongue. British Bible translator came to the fence of the revived teaching of conditional immortality. So he too 
grappling with the translation of words, decided, well, this means that the soul must sleep until the resurrection. And he had a major confrontation with uh, Thomas More on the issue, who was the papal legate. And he said, Tyndall said, all souls lie and sleep till doomsday. And in 1930, Tyndall responded vigorously, saying, And ye, talking to Thomas More, in putting them, the departed souls in heaven, hell and purgatory, destroy the argument wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. And again, if the soul be in heaven, tell me why they not be in as good a case as the angels be? And then what causes there of the resurrection? And then he pressed his contention further, and he said, Nay, Paul! Referring to the Bible, thou art unlearned, go to Master Moore and learn a new way. We be not most miserable, though we rise not again, for our souls go to heaven as soon as we be dead, and are then as great joyous Christ that is risen again. And I marvel that Paul had not comforted the Thessalonians with that doctrine, if he had wished it, that the souls of their dead should rise again, if the souls be in heaven in great glory as the angels after your doctrine, show me what cause should there be of the resurrection. That's how the reformers argued. And this is the man who gave the world the English Bible. Do the English churches believe what Tyndall taught, yes or no? No. They prefer to believe what the Pope teaches. The Pope knows that the Bible doesn't say it. He's proved it in his own encyclopedia. But he says, I don't care. I believe what the Hellenists believe. I, after all, have a body of a leopard. So, as far as the doctrines are concerned, they are strictly with serpent language. Pope abolishes state of limbo. And the BBC asks, how can limbo just be abolished? He didn't abolish purgatory because that would be a major problem because that started the Reformation in the first place. So purgatory is still there. You can still be blasted with a Bunsen burner. Now how can he do that? Well, the Pope's will stands for reason. He can dispense above the law and of wrong make right by correcting and changing laws. It appears he can also change doctrines as he pleases. Catechism of the Catholic Church, second edition. The Word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the Word became man. And the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a Son of God. For the Son of God became man, so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man, might make men gods. Now, again, just to make sure I didn't take this from an obscure source, because many accuse me that I use obscure sources, so I hope that the Vatican archives of Vatican.va are not obscure. This comes from their own webpage. This is what they teach. After all, if he has the power to change doctrines based on his reason, then he has elevated himself to the position of a god, right?
Well, this is fascinating. And he quotes, of course, Irenaeus and Thomas Aquinas and all these bright people. So who is Thomas Aquinas and where does this doctrine come from? Thomas Aquinas lived at a critical juncture of Western culture when the arrival of Aristotelian corpus in Latin translation reopened the question of the relation between faith and reason, calling into question the modus vivendi that had obtained for future for centuries. The Catholic Church has over the centuries regularly and consistently reaffirmed the central importance of Thomas's work for understanding its teachings concerning the Christian revelation. And his close textual commentaries on Aristotle represent a cultural resource which is now receiving increased recognition. Again, what is the body? Greek. It's Greek philosophy. It's not biblical philosophy. Natural law in Thomas Aquinas by the high middle ages, two strains of interpretation dominated the natural law tradition. One, the order of nature, identified with the Stoics and Alpian, focused on the physical and biological structures given in nature as the source of morality. The other, the order of reason, identified with Aristotle, Cicero, Gaius, focused on the human capacity to discover in experience what befits human well-being. And Thomas accepted both. The common understanding of the law is defined by St. Thomas as an ordinance of reason promulgated by competent authority for the sake of the common good. Now you have to take care of this one. Now the writer here is Richard M. Guler in his book Reason Informed by Faith, and we'll talk about this author in a moment and about his book. So an ordinance of reason promulgated by competent authority, who would that be? For the sake of the common good. Now, we have to work this one through. Now, let's have a look what natural law means. Natural law doesn't work on the premise of what the word says. Natural law works on what is natural in nature. I want to explain to you what this mindset leads to, and you being steeped in Christian theology, Protestant Christian theology, might take offense. But let us see where this leads us. This comes from the same source, Richard M. Gula. Excellent source. Jesuit source. Sexual activity, this is how sins are classified according to Thomas Aquinas. Sexual activity excluding procreation. Thomas classifies them in an order of ascendant gravity. Masturbation, marital contraceptive intercourse, homosexuality, and bestiality. So there are grades of sin. You know, Roman Catholics believe in venial sins and mortal sins and bad sins and not-so-bad sins and, you know, all of that stuff. Now, it gets worse from masturbation to bestiality in ascendant gravity. Now, these are sins against biological nature. Contra nutram omnis animalis. They are graver. Please note. They are graver than the sins which do not exclude procreation. So sins which can lead to procreation, which is the aim of nature, are not so bad as sins that cannot lead to procreation. 
So these are not so bad, these sins. In ascendant degree of gravity, fornication, adultery, incest. This is interesting. You see, those sins can lead to procreation. Now, let's take this logic a little bit further, because they don't take it further here for very specific reasons, obviously. Rape. Can that lead to procreation? So is it a greater sin than masturbation or a lesser sin? Help me? It's a lesser sin. It would be a lesser sin. Because by natural law, it can still lead to procreation. And if you look at this, then marital contraceptive is a greater sin than would be rape. Can you get the logic of that? This is incredible. So this is how you start thinking when you start defining things by natural law. Now, let's go to René Descartes. He was a philosopher whose work, La Geometrie, included his application of algebra to geometry, from which we now have Cartesian geometry. He was educated at the Jesuit college, etc., etc. He entered the college at the age of eight years. Just a few months after the opening of the college, he studied there until 1612, classics, logic, transitional Aristotelian philosophy. That's what you learn at the Jesuit college. And he was a Jesuit. Now, what is your thinking on this issue? Descartes was a major figure in the 17th century, continental rationalism. He is perhaps best known for the philosophical statement. I'm not going to say it in French because I'm sure to mess it up. I think, therefore I am. Found part in the fourth of the discourse in the message. Now his moral philosophy. He being a convinced rationalist clearly states that reason suffices us in the search for the goods we should seek and and for him, virtue consists in the correct reasoning that should guide our actions. So God has got nothing to do with it. I think, therefore I am, he's elevated himself to the position of God, and the morality will come from his mind and not from the mind of God. Descartes shifted the authoritative guarantor of truth from God to man. While traditional concept of truth implies an external authority. So an anthropocentric revolution, man is now raised to the level of a subject, an agent, an emancipated being equipped with autonomous reason. So in other words, the guarantor of truth is no longer God, but becomes man. I think, therefore I am. Now, in my thinking, having undergone this transformation of thinking, I would have to turn that round, because Satan is the master of reversal. So I changed it to, I think, therefore he is, which I believe is theologically correct. Because I'm even capable of thinking, there must be a higher someone who has created me with that capacity. Is that right? So if I can think, that means he must 
exist. Because I certainly didn't make myself by myself. And if I take it all the way back to Adam and Eve, I have to ask the question, where do they come from? They didn't make themselves by themselves. And because they can think must mean that he is. But not in Catholicism. In Catholicism, I think, therefore I am. Martin Heidegger sums it up as follows. For up to Descartes, the particular subjectum lies at the foundation of its own fixed qualities and changing circumstances. The superiority of a subjectum arises out of the claim of man to a self-supported, unshakable foundation of truth in the sense of certainty. Why and how does this claim acquire its decisive authority? The claim originates in that emancipation of the man in which he frees himself from obligation to Christian revelation, truth, and church doctrine to a legislating for himself that takes its stand upon itself. So, I'm the authority. So he was a rationalist. Now what does that mean? The principle or habit of accepting reason as the supreme authority in matters of opinion, belief, or conduct. That's a rationalist. So Jesuit theology rests on rationalism. It is Greek philosophy. It has nothing to do with biblical theology. Now, that brings us to this book, Reason Informed by Faith. And the author, Richard M. Gula, we've quoted him twice already, Professor of Moral Theology, St. Patrick Seminary in California. He says, natural law is central to Roman Catholic moral theology. It is the kind of reasoning which faith informs. Perhaps the single most characteristic feature of traditional Catholic morality is that the church can teach a morality which is applicable always, everywhere, and for everyone because it relies on the natural law as the basis for its teaching. So it lies in the I am principle. The advantage of using natural law is that the church shows great respect for human goodness and trusts the human capacity to know and choose what is right. Also by means of appealing to natural law, the church can address its discussion and claims for the rightness or wrongness of a particular action to all persons of goodwill. Now please note those words, we're going to get to them. All persons of goodwill. Not just to those who share its religious convictions. Now again, I'd like to think about reason informed by faith. And because this is Jesuit thinking, and we have to, as they do, they say they have to tack learning with learning, right? So let's do the same thing. In my opinion, this is gospel reversal. And Satan is the master of reversal. Because reason informed by faith is a misnomer. There can be no such title if you're a Protestant. The only way you can title a book if you're a Protestant is faith informed by reason. But not reason informed by faith. Because then faith is subject to reason. Whereas as a Christian, without faith it is impossible to please God. Is that correct? Therefore faith must be the primary... And you can augment your faith through your reason. You can look at nature. 
You can see whether there's evidence for a flood. You can see whether there's evidence for a creator God. You can look at the complexity of the genetic system and you can say, my reason establishes my faith. But this is the other way around. This is Jesuit doctrine. This put man above God. Puts faith as a lesser to a greater. So Satan being the master of reversal, I would like to propose that we should switch this round. Now, I just put the back cover of the book on for you to show you everybody who endorses it. James J. Walter, PhD, Professor of Christian Ethics, Loyola University in Chicago. Fascinating stuff. Richard A. McCormick, Professor of Christian Ethics, University of Notre Dame. Kenneth R. Hines, OFM, Associate Professor of Moral Theology, Washington Theological Union, William Sponge. S.J., Society of Jesus, Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley. So this book has the endorsement of the highest Jesuits in the field. And when a Jesuit puts out a book, you know that it has the endorsement of the general of the Jesuits as well, because that's how they work. So this is Catholic theology. We have to look at what this man has to say. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. It's not for nothing that we held a sermon like that just last night, because it's all part of the package. Luther believed that human reason is blind, deaf, senseless, godless, sacrilegious in its dealings of all God's works and words. So Luther said, our reason is fallen. Catholicism says, no, no. Our reason is paramount. Everything else is subject to it. So here is a clash of ideologies. It's a battle for the mind. This is Richard M. Gula, and he writes, one of the great disadvantages of such an approach is that it can easily lead to handing Christian morality over to the moral philosophy when religious beliefs do not really make a difference for, make a difference for moral claims. Okay. We should keep the religious reliefs subservient to the reason. The magisterium, that's the bishops, and the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church has appealed to natural law as the basis for its teachings pertaining to a just society. Now, I just want you to run that through your mind again, a just society. That the sins which do not lead to procreation are greater sins than the violation of personal sanctity. Are you getting what I'm saying? Sexual behavior, medical practice, human life, religious freemans, relationships between morality and civil law. In any case, the development of natural law tradition among Christian thinkers is due not so much to the scriptures as to the influence of Greek philosophy and Roman law. That's straight out of the mouth of a Jesuit, right? We have to know where we are standing. He also wrote an article, The Way of Goodness and Holiness, a Spirituality for Pastoral Ministers. 
Gulala directs the readers away from viewing morality as a matter of action and consequence. What shall I do to the concept of virtue? Who am I? What do I want to become? So here is a striving to be good. Who else had that striving and to do it on his terms? Cain? Cain. So the concept of who do I want to become is rooted in the ancient Greek and other ethical traditions. Over and over we come with this idea. This is not biblical, this is Greek philosophy. The focus is on the goodness of the actor instead of the good works done as a spiritual journey is about holiness. Now you must understand this philosophy. We are moving up to holiness by using our reason and our own goodness to get there. Ah. A spiritual journey is about holiness. Gula then examines the four areas of ministerial formation. Human, intellectual, spiritual, pastoral, that are common to the Catholic ministry formation. So here, we start getting an idea of where this is going to. This is Greek philosophy. It's got nothing to do with the scriptures. They're quite clear about it. Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit, dreamed of humanity merging into God and each realizing his own godhood at the Omega point. This belief has inspired many of today's New Age leaders and he's the most quoted New Age occultist. And he was the spiritual father of the United Nations. Now, of course, for many years, the Roman Catholic Church would shout, Oh, no, no, we don't want uh, to read his articles and this and that and the other, so that people who get confronted with these ideas might believe the Catholic Church has distanced itself from his teaching. But I have news for you. He is the one who wrote the general convergence of religions upon a universal Christ who satisfies them all. That seems to me the only possible conversion of the world and the only form in which a religion of the future can be conceived. In his major work, Natural Law, this is Richard M. Gula writing again, the Jesuit, writing about a Jesuit. The theological investigation, Joseph Fuchs develops the line of thinking. He maintains that creation is intrinsically connective with redemptive incarnation so that revelation adds nothing new to what can we can discover of the material connective morality through reason. Natural law itself is graced. Therefore, the rational requirements of morality are the commandments of the Creator. Ooh. All right. So the natural law thinking of Roman Catholicism is graced. We don't have to worry about Scripture. We only have to worry about what the exponents of this morality have to say about it. And it is linked to the creation. It has a progressive. Tyler de Chardin, his ideas went beyond the toleration expressed in non-overlapping magisteria or the idea that religion and science need not conflict. Tyler's union went far deeper than that. He believed that religion and evolution were inextricably linked. 
that such as such Christianity did not make sense without evolution. He first propounded the Omega Point theory that mankind evolves towards Godhood. I'm showing you Jesuit thinking. Man is evolving towards Godhood, abetted by Jesus Christ, making evolution a theological as well as a physical transition in form. And if you think that the Catholic Church has distanced itself from this, then think again. This is the Roman Catholic on online article, Vatican spokesman Father Frederico Lombardi said in July 2009, by now, no one would dream of saying that Teilhard is a heterodox author who shouldn't be studied. So we've progressed along the line. We can happily embrace this teaching as part of Roman Catholicism. How far does his thinking then go when it comes to the United Nations? Robert Muller, who was the chairman for the Peace Party and the Assistant Secretary General of the UN, said, Decide to open yourself to God, to the universe, to all your brethren and sisters, to your inner self, to the potential of the human race, to the infinity of your inner self, and you will become the universe. You will become infinity. You will be at long last your real divine, stupendous self. So he's taken this philosophy. Or he was a Teilhardian. And there is his webpage, Global Spirit. Welcome to Global Spirit. It seeks to inspire consciousness of the wholeness of the human family and the sacred tapestry of all life. Now, this is a fascinating philosophy. The wholeness of the human family. Basically, you are all cells. And the human family, as it were, is like an organism. And each cell has its place to play. But it cannot be independent of the body. It has to be part of everything and subject to everything. It's a wonderful philosophy, apparently. So there's a global consciousness that honors the wisdom found in the world's traditions, cultures, and disciplines. The awakening of global consciousness is a new and monumental event in human evolution. We've now progressed to the point where mankind can adopt the spirituality. And of course, it's mainstream now. A person like Eckhart Tolle, who speaks on uh, Oprah Winfrey shows and etc. on our television media, makes no bows about it. He says, I know that I am. And he says, Jesus Christ was just another being like us. We are all God. Every single one of us is God. This is the same philosophy as the Jesuits have. And now let's go to Vatican II. Having established what Jesuit theology is, having established the basis of their morality and their thinking, let's go to Vatican II. Vatican II, here is Pope John XXIII being carried into Vatican II's opening ceremony. When asked to explain his prayers and hopes for the council, he simply went to a window and threw it open letting the fresh breeze wafting into the room express his intention in a single gesture. A breath of fresh air. Now when I hear our spokespersons of religious liberty telling our people that Vatican II was a breath of fresh air, it requires a response. 
And since that was a public statement, this is also a public response. This was the great council that made ecumenism possible. This was the great possibility of reuniting the whole of Christendom. And it was a breath of fresh air. Rome had changed its view. No longer did you have to belong to the Roman Catholic community in order to be saved. You could be whatever you were. What a wonderful change of heart. Did Vatican II change the Roman Catholic position established at the Council of Trent, which led to the separation? Congregation for Doctrine of Faith. This is Vatican.va. This is Cardinal Ratzinger's argument on the issue. He became Pope, and he's the sleeping partner in the papacy today. Did the Second Vatican Council change the Catholic doctrine on the church? The, Catholic, the Second Vatican Council neither changed nor intended to change this doctrine. Rather, it developed it, deepened it, and more fully explained it. This was exactly what John XXIII said at the beginning of the Council, and Paul VI affirmed it and commented in an act of promulgation, the Constitution, Lumen Gentium. There is no better comment to make than to say that this promulgation really changes nothing of the traditional doctrine. What Christ willed, we also will. What was, still is. What the church has taught down through the centuries, we still teach. In simple terms, that which was assumed is now explicit, that which is uncertain is now clarified, that which was meditated upon, discussed, and sometimes argued, however, is now put together in one clear formulation. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. One is always bound to follow the judgment of a properly informed conscience. The informing takes place in community by appealing to various sources of moral wisdom. The church, in the church, the magisterial is a source of moral authority. So what the church bishops say, the magisterium, that's where the authority lies. Its teaching is a very important, though not exclusive, factor in the formation of conscience in one's moral judgment. To appeal to authority is part of reason responsible living. In appealing to an authority, we believe that it will be more correct about this question than we will, or than any, anyone else to whom we might appeal. The key text for understanding a loyal response to magisterial teaching is found in the papal encyclical, Lumen Gentium, point 25. This is what it says. In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ, and the faithful accept their teaching and adhere to it with religious assent of soul. In other words, they capitulate to it. They accept it. This religious submission of will and of mind must be shown in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. Richard M. Goulart, Jesuit teaching. You will listen to the magisterium. You will listen to the Pope. You will agree with what he says. You will submit your will to that reasoning, even if he's not speaking ex cathedra. Did you get it? Who's the boss? The Pope. I thought there's such an openness that you can think what you want to think. No, no, no. You may only live if you obey. 
In my treatment of formation of conscience, I pointed out that character is formed in community by committing our freedom to a particular object of loyalty. I wonder who that particular object of loyalty could be? And I would have to go back to Ignatius Loyola and his spiritual exercises where he says, because I cannot speak with Christ directly, I have to choose a substitute who is a ruler and has all da, 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 these attributes which only the Pope has, and so I must be subject to him. And then by internalizing the images, the rituals, the traditions, etc., which the community has fashioned in order to carry the meaning attached to that object of loyalty. So in other words, like a brainless individual, I go through the liturgies and the rituals of the church and I adhere to the doctrines of the church because the Pope said so. What does religious assent or submission of will and mind mean in moral matters? This is a modern Jesuit telling us what we must do and how we must think. Religious assent or submission means that such effort and appropriation are motivated by the conviction that Jesus has commissioned the church to teach and that the Spirit guides the church in truth. So what the church says is right. You will not argue with the church. Francis A. Sullivan, an ecclesiologist from the Gregorian University in Rome, another Jesuit institute, has analyzed this expression in his masterful work, The Magisterium, teaching authority in the Catholic Church and offers this summary statement of its meaning. Why is it necessary for me to go through all of this? It's necessary for me to go through all of this because there are people in Protestant communities, my own not excluded, who believe that Rome has changed. And therefore we can sit in ecumenical council. What does this mean? What does this authority say? As I understand it then, to give the required obsequium religiosium, they use such nice names. To be obsequious is to be submissive to this religious authority. To the teaching of the ordinary magisterium means to make an honest and sustained effort to overcome any contrary opinion I might have and to achieve a sincere assent of my mind to this teaching. I will not think about it. I will make an effort to submit. How far do I go in this, Mr. Gula? The official text of the 19... 78 National Catechetical Directory Sharing the Light of Faith States. It is the task of catechesis to elicit assent to all that the church teaches. For the church is the indispensable guide to the complete richness of what Jesus teaches. When faced with the questions which pertain to dissent from non-infallible teaching of the church, it is important for catechists to keep in mind that the presumption is always in favor of the magisterium. No matter what I may think, they're right. And then he has this marvelous statement. And you know, they have a way with words. They have a way with words because they have learning against learning. Isn't that right? Only a system of tight syllogism. Do you know what that means? 
Only a system of tight syllogism deductive reasoning which leave no room for personal affective element. What is an affective element? My own feelings, my own emotion. Would come near guaranteeing certitude about knowing and doing what God requires and enables. This is a modern way, a brilliant modern way of saying perinde e cadaver, to be like a corpse. Not to think, not to use your own mind when it comes to this issue. You obey the magisterium, you obey the Pope, you don't think for yourself. That's what it means, literally. Education. Remember, this is the thinking of the United Nations. This is not just a Jesuit in some corner teaching. These are the rulers of the world. This is going to be the philosophy of the world, take it or leave it. The world will not change and find peace if there's not a new education. You and you tant former secretary general. This comes from their own webpage. The great heresy of separateness. This is an article written by none other than a high occultist from the Theosophical Society. A concentration of thought upon personal individuals seeking personal rather than spiritual freedom is the way which leads downwards. Excuse me. The pathway of self is the pathway to ever deeper realms and spheres of matter until finally annihilation comes at the end of the cosmic cycle when matter itself dissolves. Maya is matter is illusion. The great heresy and the only real heresy is the idea that anything is separate. We're all part of the whole. Distinct and different, essentially from other things. That is a wandering from natural fact and law. It's the same philosophy. This is occult philosophy. For nature is nothing but coordination, cooperation, mutual helpfulness, and the rule of fundamental unity is perfectly universal. Everything in the universe lives for everything else. It is this sense of separateness that is the cause and root of all evil. It brings forth the craving for me, I want, I am mine. And it is the sense of personal separateness, imagining that one is utterly separate from others, utterly different, that prevents one from becoming the inner God within. Do you see this philosophy? This is Jesuit philosophy. For by becoming that inner God, you become consciously at one with the universe, for which you are a child, an inseparable part, that means drawing up strength, inexhaustible wisdom without compass, drinking at the fountain of inspiration which flows from the heart of the universe. Everyone is rooted in the common fountain of the cosmic life intelligence substance, golden precepts of esotericism published in Theosophical University Press. I think, therefore, I am. No, I think, therefore, he is. Second Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We have a choice here. We're either with them, or we're not with them. Robert Muller, remember? Former Secretary General. He's also the author of the World Core Curriculum. What does he have to say on the issue? 
steer our children towards global citizenship, earth-centered beliefs, socialist values, and a collective mindset, which is becoming a requirement for the 21st century workforce. So we need a collective mindset. We're part of the whole. We may not be an individual. You may not be an individual. You will bow to the superior power. UNSET, also called the Earth Summit, was an unveiling of the philosophical shift from Judeo-Christian worldview to Gaia. And these documents contain an agenda which can only be called devilish. Joan Vian writes, in feudalistic times, only the king and nobility owned land and had freedom. So too, under the United Nations rules, feudalistic times will return and the lights of freedom will go out. With the adoption of sustainable development at onset, man was demoted to the same level as a plant or an animal. You may not have a mind of your own. The former director of the World Health Organization, Dr. Brock Kism, goes further. He says, to achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family traditions, national patriotism, and religious dogmas. Got to get rid of it. Got to scrap it. Now let's look what the Protestant world has to say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I quite admire this man. He had the guts to stand up against Adolf Hitler and he died for his convictions. He said, through the call of Jesus, men become individuals. That's the exact opposite doctrine, isn't it? Willy-nilly they are compelled to decide and that decision can only be made by themselves. It is no choice of their own that makes them individuals. It is Christ who makes them individuals by calling them. Every man is called separately and must follow alone. But men are frightened of solitude and they try to protect themselves by merging themselves in the society of their fellow men and their material environment. Protestant saying, no, I dare not give up my individuality. Let's read the spirit of prophecy. The error that some are in danger of committing is in giving to the mind and judgment of one man or a small group of men the full measure of authority and influence that God has vested in his church in the judgment and voice of the general conference assembled to plan for the prosperity and advancement of his work. You may let no man tell you your duty. No man. Even if he is the general conference president, he doesn't have the right to tell you what to do. He can give you advice, but he doesn't have the right to tell you what to do. No group of men in any capacity within any church may be set aside to tell you what you may believe, what dogma is right and what is wrong. There may not be an institution where you send something to and say, is this man right or is this man wrong? And that word stands, it's against God's law. No such thing in God's church. The only voice that is acceptable is the entire assembly at a general conference where every delegate from the whole field of the world makes a decision. Not me saying so. Read it there. Testimonies, volume 9. It is dangerous work to invest men with authority to judge and rule their fellow men. Not to you nor to any other man has been given power to control the action of God's people. And the effort to do this must be no longer continued. That's pretty straightforward. 
That's pretty straightforward. So nobody may tell me my duty. I am responsible to God as to what I believe and what I preach. I may take counsel, I may take advice, but if a general conference assembly decides an issue, then I must surrender whatever idiosyncrasy I might have on a particular matter. That's the teaching from the spirit of prophecy. Sometimes a man who has been placed in responsibility as a leader against the idea that he is in a position of supreme authority and that all his brethren before making advanced moves must first come to him for permission to do that which they feel should be done. Such a man is in a dangerous position. He has lost sight of the work of a true leader among God's people. Instead of acting as a white counselor, he assumes the prerogative of an exacting ruler. God is dishonored by every such display of authority and self-exaltation. It doesn't belong in God's church. There are two sets of norms here. One that is set by Rome, and one that is set by God. And never the twain shall meet. And if that which is set by Rome starts coming into the church, then you must protest because it's against God's will. It's against God's will. Ignatianspirituality.com Viola Press Karl Rana, One of the architects of Vatican II. One of the most important theologians of the 20th century, Karl Rana, was born March 1904. He was the fourth of seven children, the son of a local college professor, devout Christian and a devout Christian mother. He followed his old brother, older brother Hugo and entered the Jesuit community. As a Jesuit novice, Rana was formed in the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. That's his spirituality. Outside the Bible, it's what I experience through my methodology. The formation had a lasting influence on his spiritual and intellectual development. I think that the spiritual spirituality of Ignatius himself, which one learned through the practice of prayer and religious formation, was more significant to me than all the learned philosophy and theology inside and outside the order. Karl Rana. What I do is as a consequence of this spirituality that I have. In his studies, Rana became thoroughly conversant with the thinking of the fathers of the church, topics of grace, sacraments, spirituality, mysticism. This is what the architects of Vatican II were about. The London Times wrote Karl Rana's girlfriend at her death, because he had a girlfriend, he says he didn't have relations with her, but he prostrated himself for, before her. She remained a practicing Roman Catholic to the end of her days, but campaigned for abortion against celibacy, as well as against the power of the priesthood. In spite of that, she counted amongst her personal friends Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. She stood for the German presidency in 1984 at the age of 73 as a Green Party candidate and campaigned in the West for North Korean dictator Kim Soo-sung. Now, if you don't understand that the East and the West are just part of a Hegelian dialectic controlled by the same strings. You could get confused with this, couldn't you? Rana himself showed a similar maverick, deeply rooted in his version of Catholicism. His motto was, our Lord must conform to the world, not it to him. So here's a reversal is noted as the most important Roman theologian 
and he put theology and philosophy in, in dialogue. And he says those who are outside of the Roman Catholic faith in the other religions such as the Buddhists or atheists, anonymous Christians, those who don't even know, they are part of a Christianity that does not call itself Christianity. Pagans who have received grace but who are not aware of it. Everybody is now allowed to come into Vatican II. No other name? Please. Paul Netta, his student, there he is, says every other name. Jesus is not the only way. Without Buddha, I could not be a Christian, he says. All the religions must join together. And at Assisi, they all come together and they sing the same tune. At the conclusion of Vatican II, Pope Paul VI told the bishops that their church had decided to opt for man. To serve man, to help him build his home on this earth. Man with his ideas and his aims, man with his hopes, his fears, man in his difficulties and suffering, that was the centerpiece of the church's interest, said the bishop, pontiff to his bishops, Malachi Martin. So there's an emphasis now on man. We're going to shift away from Jesus Christ. This is Vatican II. This is their thinking. They're thinking that their teaching is indispensable and freedom is submission to that teaching. Can you see where religious liberty can slip up here if they don't understand their terminology? Because they think, oh, they're for religious freedom. Religious freedom means you are free to practice what you want, provided. That's what it means to a Catholic. And a Protestant will go, gulp, gulp, give me more of that. The Vatican official foundation starting point is man. It is man himself who must be saved. It is mankind that must re be renewed. It is man, therefore, is the key to this discussion. Man considered whole and entire with body and soul, heart and conscience, mind and world. This is the reason why the sacred synod proclaiming the noble destiny of man and affirming an element of the divine in him, good grief, offers to cooperate unreservedly with mankind in fostering a sense of brotherhood to correspond to the destiny of theirs. This is Vatican II documents, Gaudium et Spes. This is what Paul VI wrote. So the church becomes as what Brian, McBrien calls change agent becomes a servant. And the gospel becomes a struggle for social justice. Now these are buzzwords we hear a lot today. Peace and human rights. The church's activities on behalf of social justice or human rights are not just preparatory. This is the mission. The church's commitment to an involvement in the struggle for social justice, peace and human rights is an essential constitutive part of its mission. So here's a new gospel with a new leadership, with a new philosophy. Israeli sources say Pope's plans peace meeting between Abrahamic religions. All of them must come together. Pope calls for religions to unite. He urged members of all religions and those belonging to no church to unite to defend justice, peace, the environment, and not to allow the value of a person to be reduced to what he produces, so this is a new gospel and everybody hails this as the greatest Christian who ever lived. The Anglican Church already 
indicated that it was subject to Rome, and the present new Anglican bishop. Now please, I don't knock the man. He has strange ideas, biblically speaking, but perhaps he's just confused. Shifting style is outsider Justin Welby and Pope Francis get together. Francis is the first Jesuit Pope and Welby is the first Archbishop of Canterbury from the charismatic evangelical organization. He said the Jesuits are older, more accomplished and more likely to survive the century. The fact his spiritual director is Catholic Benedictine is probably a good sign of how he sees the churches working together locally, spiritually and personally, not as organizations. His spiritual director is a Benedictine Catholic who practices Ignatian spirituality. So he's being trained by a Roman Catholic Jesuit thinking. And here he is coming to the Vatican. Let's have some sound on this and listen to what they say. It sounds so nice and benign. Pope Francis walked along with the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, at the Vatican. Their first official meeting included a midday prayer, as well as a visit to the tomb of St. Peter and that of blessed John Paul II. But before praying together, Pope Francis met with the new head of the Anglican Communion at the Vatican's Apostolic Palace, where Welby was accompanied by his wife. There, both leaders talked about the common ground they share. To start off, the Pope mentioned the fact that they were both sworn in recently. Having initiated our respective ministries at a few days of distance, one and the other, we will always have a particular reason for supporting us with prayer. Pope Francis and Welby admitted that the relationship between the Catholic Church and Anglican communions is complex. Yet the will to promote Christian values is a common value they both share. But for that to happen, they said reconciliation and unity are essential. So there has come to many a new longing for the unity of all Christians and a new knowledge that however long the road may be, charity already makes all the difference to it. Now you must understand these words. There's a longing for this unity and charity makes all the difference. Now this word charity is a fascinating word. Charity. Generous action or donation to aid the poor, ill or helpless, to devote one's life to charity. It has also been included in the King James Version as a translation of agapeo, which is a rather unfortunate translation, in my opinion. Something given to a person or person in need, alms. She asked for work, not charity, a charitable act of work, etc. Benevolent feeling towards those in need. And the word charity comes from the Latin caritas, which Jerome used to translate the word agape. In Paul's psalm of love, it is set forth as an innermost principle contrasting with prophecy and knowledge, faith and works as a motive that determines the quality of the whole inner life and gives value to its activities. Almsgiving. With the growing legalism of the church and the prevalence of monastic ideals of morality, caritas became, came to mean the very opposite of Paul's agape. Please note, this comes from Bible study tools 
Dictionary.com. Dictionary. And so there is a shift in meaning of this word in today's usage. In which way is the papacy using it? As agape? Or as being there for the materially poor? That is the question we have to ask ourselves. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you build unto me and where's the place of my rest? For all those things has mine hand made and all those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. And if you then look up that word, what does it mean, poor? It means depressed in mind or circumstance. So when the Bible speaks about the poor, it sometimes has a literal meaning that we have to take care of the physical needs of the poor. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, it means to depress, be depressed in mind. It has nothing to do with this new concept of handing out soup. Not that I'm knocking handing out soup. Please don't misunderstand me. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible also uses the word meek. And that also means depressed figuratively in mind. So here are those who have been subject to the devil. Now when the Pope wrote the encyclical, Pope Benedict XVI, the current retired Pope, he wrote the encyclical Caritas in Veritate, where he expounds on this issue. And he says, man's earthly activity, when inspired and sustained by charity, contributes to building of the universal city of God. Fascinating. Do you know that Abraham longed for a city whose builder and maker was God? Here we're talking about another city which is the goal of the history of the human family. In the increasingly globalized society, the common good and the effort to obtain it cannot fail to assume the dimension of the whole human family. That is to say, the community of peoples and nations in such a way as to shape the, what is that, excuse me? Earthly city in a unity and peace, rendering it to some degree an anticipation and prefiguring of an undivided city of God. So he wants an earthly city. I don't care for an earthly city. They all have foul sewerage. <laughs> I care for a heavenly city. And my prayer is, thy kingdom come, not their kingdom come. First ever International Day of Charity. Thank you. UnitedNations.org We recognize the role of charity in alleviating poverty. Okay. Here we have the philosophy, and when they use the word charity, it doesn't mean what the King James Bible meant when it said charity. It means what they think is charity today. So the gospel has become something else. The continual application to contemporary circumstances began with the encyclical Solicitudo Re Socialis, which with which the servant of God, Pope John Paul II, chose to mark the 20th anniversary of the publication Popularum Progressio. Until that time, the only rerum novarum had been commemorated in this way. 
Now a further 20 years have passed, I express my conviction that popularum progressio deserves to be considered the rerum novarum of the present age, shedding light upon the humanity's journey towards unity. Now, you have to shake your heads a little bit to wake up, because this is a serious issue. This affects us. Rome is supposed to be this magnificent organization that aspires to religious liberty and liberty for all. But their definition of liberty is totally different to everyone else's definition of liberty. And now he says, that is Pope Benedict, that this encyclical and rerum novarum, popularum progressio, is the rerum novarum of the present age. Which means we'll have to study this stuff. Paul VI in Popularum Progressio called for the creation of a model of market economy. We need a new model of market economy. In this way, he was applying on a global scale the insights and aspirations contained in Rerum Novarum, a previous encyclical. That the civil order for its self-regulation also needed intervention from the state for purposes of redistribution. Please note these words. I'm quoting now encyclicals. In case someone says this is a secondary source. These are primary sources. They come directly from the Vatican page. This is all caritas in veritate. Political authority also involves a wide range of values, which must not be overlooked in the process of constructing a new order of economic productivity, social responsibility, and a human in, and human in scale. Human. The state's role seems destined to grow as it regains many of its competences. In some nations, moreover, the construction and reconstruction of the state remains a key factor in their development. So some nations have to be reconstructed. In order to reconstruct them, you must first deconstruct them. Perhaps blow them off the face of the earth so that they can become what they should become. Alongside economic aid, there needs to be aid directed toward reinforcing the guarantees proper to the state of law. Now we're linking it with a previous lecture. These are the rulers. These are the rulers of the world, and this is their standard. A system of public order and effective imprisonment. This is Pope Benedict speaking. He's still alive. Okay. So what is Catholic social teaching all about? After all, do we not at the current time have a Pope who says he stands for social justice and everybody swallows the word and says, how delightful, can I have another morsel? Do we know what Catholic social justice means? Do you know where we are heading? And my dear church, do you know what Catholic social justice means? Catholic social teaching, look it up on their webpage. Most would accept that Catholic social teaching in its current form began with the encyclical Rerum Novarum. They all say that. And it's presently ended with Caritas and Veritate, from which I just quoted. And here is Popularum Progressio, which Pope Benedict says is the Rerum Novarum of our day. 
Popularum Progressi is the encyclical written by Pope Paul on the topic of the development of peoples. I would like to know where this development is leading. Here it is from that encyclical. The teaching set forth by our predecessor, Leo XIII, in Rerum Novarum is still valid today. Now Pope Benedict said, this encyclical is the encyclical for our day. That encyclical says, whatever I say is in harmony with Rerum Novarum. The rule of free consent remains subservient to the demand of natural law. What does that mean? I've just explained it to you for about an hour. I know your minds must be tired by now, because mine is about to capitulate. <laughs> but I need to continue, because this needs to be put on record. This is exactly what we quoted from that Jesuit book, Reason Informed by Faith. I have to submit my mind to this authority. I have to give assent of mine. The rule of free consent remains subservient to the demand of natural law. I have to obey natural law. And who is the one who promulgates natural law? It's the Pope. He's infallible. Towards an effective world authority. This is the Pope speaking, Popularum Progressio. This is Pope Paul VI the final architect of the second cycle of Vatican II. Such international collaboration among the nations of the world certainly calls for institutions that will promote, coordinate and direct it until a new juridical order is firmly established and fully ratified. Every nation will fall under the same law. As we told the United Nations General Assembly in New York, your vocation is to bring not just some peoples, but all peoples together as brothers, who can fail to see the need and importance of this gradually coming to the establishment of a world authority capable of taking effective action in the juridical and political planes. We are rulers. We have the power to rule, and all nations will submit. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a papal encyclical. Whoever needs property ought to possess it, says John Robbins, quoting from the book Ecclesiastical Megalomania, the economic and political thought of the Roman church. Need makes another goods one's own. Need is the ultimate and only moral title to property. Canon 1254, the Catholic church has an innate right to acquire, retain, administer, alienate temporal goods in pursuit of its proper ends, independently of the civil power, the church has an innate right to require from the Christian faithful whatever is necessary for the ends proper to it. They can take whatever they like. I know I've discussed it many times, but I want to put it into the context of where we are going now. Universal destination of goods, what does that mean? It sounds so interesting. Well, in Popularum Progressio, Paul said, God intended the earth and all that it contains for the use of every human being and people. Thus, as all men follow justice and unite in charity, created goods should abound for them on a reasonable basis. It is a grave and urgent social duty to redirect them to their primary finality. Basically, if you work, on the soil, with the soil, the produce of the soil is yours. If you are a worker on a farm, the farm actually belongs to the worker. 
because the one who works by natural law is the one who gets from it, not the owner. There's no such thing. Rerum novarum, Article 31. It cannot, however, be doubted that to attain the purposes we are treating of, not only the church but all human agencies must concur. Everybody. All who are concerned in the matter should be of one mind and according to their ability act together. This has to be. So whatever. It is sufficient therefore to inquire what part the state should play in the work of the remedy and relief. By the state we understand not the particular forms of government prevailing in this or that nation but the state as rightly apprehended. Please note. That is to say, any government conformable in its institution to right reason. Oh boy, what does that mean? Any government that is submissive to the reason of Rome. If it is not, what happens to that government? You disappear. You disappear. And those dictates of the divine wisdom which we have expounded on in the encyclical, the Christian constitution of the state. This is quoted from Rerum Novarum. Well, then I get interested when I read these papal encyclicals. I'm saving you a lot of trouble. I'm reading them for you. <laughs> so he says, the state has to be of this state of mind, as we said in that encyclical. So I go to the Vatican webpage and I say, where's that encyclical? Let's read it. Here is this encyclical. And it is part of this theory that all questions that concern religion are to be referred to private judgment. That everyone is to be free to follow whatever religion he prefers, or none at all if he disapproves of all. From this the following consequences logically flow. So he's saying, is it alright for everyone to believe what he wants to believe? What are the consequences of this? That the judgment of each one's conscience is independent of all law that the most unrestrained opinions may be openly expressed as to the practice or omission of divine worship, and that everyone has unbounded license to think whatever he chooses and to publish abroad whatever he thinks. Now when the state rests on foundations like those just named, and for the time being they are greatly in favor, it really appears into what and how unrightful a position the church is driven. For when the management of a public business is in harmony with the doctrines of such kind, the Catholic religion is allowed the standing in civil society equal only or inferior to societies alien from it. No regard is paid to the lords of the church. And she, who by the order and commission of Jesus Christ has the duty of teaching all nations, finds herself forbidden to take any part in the instruction of the people. What is the church saying? Church and state must be together. A state from which religion is banished can never be well regulated. And already perhaps more than is desirable is known of the nature and tendency of the so-called civil philosophy of life and morals. The Church of Christ is the true and sole teacher of virtue and guardian of morals. She it is who preserves in their purity the principles from which duty flows. And by setting forth most urgent reason for virtuous life beats us not only to turn away from wicked deeds but even to curb all movements of the mind that are opposed to reason. Don't think for yourself, we'll think for you. Even though they may not be carried out in action. To wish the church to be subject to the civil power in exercise of her duty is a great folly and a sheer injustice. That's Rome speaking. 
So our religious liberty, friends, does the Roman Catholic Church grant you religious liberty? Definitely not. It is lawful, says that Thomas Aquinas, for a man to hold private property. But if the question is asked, how must it be used? The church replies in the same words of the doctor, man should not consider his material, material possessions his own, but common to all. I've discussed this many times. Ahab took Naboth's vineyard at the instigation of Jezebel. To act with strict justice, with that justice which is called distributive, says rerum novarum. So, that's what the St. Thomas says. The state has a duty to take from those that have and give to those that are poor, that have not. Rerum Novarum says, and here we are reminded of the confraternities, societies, religious orders which have arisen by the church's authority and the piety of Christian men. The annals of every nation down to our own days bear witness of what they have accomplished for the human race. It is indisputable that on grounds of reason alone, such associations being perfectly blameless oh, in their objects, possess the sanction of law of nature. In their religious aspect, they claim rightly to be responsible to the church alone. The rulers of the state accordingly have no rights over them, nor can they claim any share in their control. On the contrary, it is the duty of the state to respect and cherish them, and if need be, to detend them from attack. Don't touch the church. We're in control. State, you will take everybody else's money, but you will leave us alone. That's what Rerum Novarum said. Deutsche Wirtschaftsnachrichten. German economic news. And this comes from 7-9-2013. This is very new. G20 beschließt weltweiten Zugriff auf die Vermögen der Bürger. The G20 wants to take what is yours. The G20 has reached a milestone. They want to have the general enteignung, dispossession of all citizens. You will own nothing. They'll take it away. By whose order? By whose order will they now take it away? The church has just said, by whose order it will be. The common good. Mater e magistra. She's the mother and teacher. She's the one who will do it. Gaudium et spes says so. Mater e magistra, encyclical, mother and teacher of the nations. Such is the Catholic church in the mind of a founder. To her was entrusted by the Holy Founder the twofold task of giving life to her children and of teaching them and guiding them, both as individuals and as nations, with maternal care. Don't mess with the church. She's the mother. You must be subordinate of individual and group interests, said Pius, on a world scale. There must be social justice, a network for public and private institutions, all act economic activity must be controlled by her. This is Rick Joyner and as you can see he's a knight of Malta. He says the war is a battle for the hearts and minds of the people. It is a spiritual war and the weapons are spiritual not carnal. So here's one of their men speaking. He says the coming kingdom will at first be 
like a totalitarianism. As the Lord will destroy the Antichrist spirit now dominating the world with the sword of his mouth and will shatter many nations like pottery, instead of taking away liberties and becoming more domineering, the kingdom will move from a point of necessary control while people are learning truth, integrity, honor, and how to make decisions to increase liberty so that they can. This is amazing stuff. So the church is going to re-educate mankind. You're going to bow before that high priest and accept what he says, or you're going to be eradicated. You're going to be eradicated. But John 18.36 says, My kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? Selection of compilations of books by Alice O. Bailey. She talks about, finally, when the United Nations succeeds in all of this, people will be gathered out of all the religions, and the great heresy of separateness will come to an end. So we have two conflicting viewpoints. God's plan, said Pope Francis, is to unite all humanity. Under which philosophy? I think, therefore, I am, or I think, therefore, he is. Which of the two philosophies do I want to espouse? When the previous pope, or the sleeping pope, spoke to the United Nations, and when he spoke to the assembly of the German government, he said, natural law will be the basis of your moral teaching. And by accepting me to teach and speak here in your assemblies, you are recognizing my authority to tell you so. This is unbelievable stuff. Here is Ban Ki-moon, and let's hear what he has to say. When Pope Francis was elected, he immediately went to see him. from the Vatican. I was greatly honored to have an audience so early uh, in his tenure. I told His Holiness that his choice of name after Saint Francis of Assisi was a powerful message for the many goals and principles shared by the United Nations. I was especially privileged to meet Pope Francis as we mark 1,000 days to the deadline for the Millennium Development Goals. 1,000 days to the development of the Millennium Goals. What are they? To eradicate extreme poverty and hunger by the year 2015. That's not too long away, is it? To achieve universal primary education promote gender equality and empower women, 
reduce child mortality, combat HIV AIDS, ensure environmental sustainability, reduce biodiversity loss, achieving it by 2010, develop a global partnership for development. These are fascinating points. Rule-based, predictable, non-discriminatory trading and finance system deal comprehensively with developing countries' debt. All of these must be achieved by 2015. Poverty must disappear by 2015. How do you do that? Well, there are two ways of doing it. Either you take every cent that anybody has on this planet and you redistribute it, or else you get rid of all that are poor. The only two ways in which to do it, Pope John Paul stated, when through the century she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind above all the worker. And then he quotes Pope Leo, and he says in his encyclical Rerum Novarum, which Benedict says is binding today, Sunday rest is a worker's right which the state must guarantee. Let's read it there in Rerum Novarum. From this follows the obligation of the cessation from work and labor on Sunday and certain holy days. The rest from labor is not to be understood as merely give way to idleness, much less must it be an occasion for spending money and for vicious indulgence as many would have it to be, but it should be rest from labor hallowed by religion. Let the working man be urged and led to the worship of God, to the earnest practice of religion, and among other things, to the keeping holy of Sunday and holy days. Let him learn to reverence and love the holy church, the common mother of us all. Where's Jesus? And hence to obey the precepts of the church and to frequent the sacraments, since they are the means ordained by God of obtaining forgiveness of sin. Good grief, I think I'm going to have an apoplectic fit. These are the Georgia Guidestones. This is a serious issue. We've spoken of Catholic morality. We've spoken of the way they think. We've seen in the previous lecture that the rulers of evil, once they have the power, eventually turn against anything that stands on the principles of the Bible. They will go so far, the rulers of evil, to eradicate the Prince of Peace while he is amongst them. They will go to the persecution of those who follow Jesus Christ and the freedom which he promises. They will destroy and obliterate anyone who stands on the principles of the Bible. Now the Georgia Guidestones are fascinating. The construction began in 1979 when a stranger, who was known as Mr. Christian, came and wanted to occupy a certain piece of land to erect these guidestones. Now that was a pseudonym, and we'll look at it a little bit further. The Georgia Guidestones, center, cluster, detect, erected March 22, 1918. Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Now, after this lecture, who will stands for reason? The Pope's will stands for reason. This is Roman Catholic thinking. Reason is the only basis upon which morality and a civilization of the future can be envisioned. Let's go a little further. 
Babylonian cuneiform, classical Greek, Sanskrit, Egyptian hieroglyphics, all these languages written there. Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Author, a pseudonym, R.C. Christian. Now that's a fascinating pseudonym. What could R.C. stand for? Huh? Which church claims to have principles based on reason? Only the Roman Catholic Church. We've seen it in their philosophy. We've seen it in their encyclicals. And I am, I apologize for boring you with all those encyclicals. But if I used any other source, everybody would say those are secondary sources. We have to get it out of the horse's mouth, right? So the author is R.C. Christian, a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason. There's a time capsule placed six feet below the spot on such and such a date, which is not there. It is to be opened on whatever. Who knows? They're going towards this point. What do they want? They are astronomically situated. They have alignments with the astrological features and the astronomical features. This is the philosophy of the esoteric world. And they are very precisely constructed. If you look at all the dimensions, that's a lecture in itself. I don't want to go there in this lecture. I just want to look at some of the principles. Here are the principles. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. That's a half a billion people. Now there are currently about seven and a half billion people on the planet. What's going to happen to the other seven billion? How do you get rid of seven billion people? Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Rule with tempered reason. Excuse me? Who has the power to rule? Who has the mark of Cain, who has the sign of Anu to rule over the children of disobedience. Protect people and nations with fair laws and a just court. Just, of course, only in the sense of their justice. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. officials that's the only good law they have. Balance personal rights with social duties, prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And do not be a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. This is the moral social philosophy of R.C. Christian. And there are all the parameters that we see. Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. I am convinced we are at the very culmination of history. I am convinced that the final events proclaimed in the word of God are coming to fruition. I am convinced that everybody who believes the word of God must separate himself from the mindset which we have just discussed. If we don't, we are part and parcel of that evil. And if we don't do it, we will be destroyed in this war when this king comes on his white horse. Not because he wants to destroy us, but because sin and Christ are incompatible. And if I cling to sin, I will be destroyed together with my sin. My sin. May our people realize that Vatican II was not a breath of fresh air. It was something sulfurous from the bottomless pit. And may the Lord help us to have enough wisdom to discern truth from error. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.